Good morning, church. Before we jump into the Word this morning, I want to share just a couple quick things. First of all, uh, thank you, Rocky, for sharing that uh, exhortation to the men. Um, in particular, Rocky was encouraging the men to join part of the men's discipleship. That's going to begin. We have our first session, our first, first gathering time this Saturday. And I would encourage the men of the church, if you want to learn more about that, talk to Rocky, talk to James Lee, talk to Jonathan Rodriguez. Uh, James and Rocky are going to be leading that up. But that's going to be a really important time for the men of this church to be strengthened. I encourage you to come, uh, whether you're new to the church or you've been a member for a long time. Would love to have you join. Uh, also, just want to share with you uh, a reminder about the way that we're operating in terms of the weekly worship guide and one of the things we're doing in the services. You may have noticed, if you're paying close attention, that the uh, the verse that we just read for our um, our scripture reading just a few moments ago. Uh, that Jeff read for us. That was the closing verse that we had last week. Well, that was also the verse that we were supposed to be memorizing throughout the week this week. Now, perhaps you haven't been uh, working very much on the memorization yet, but the first thing you'll see at the top of the weekly worship guide every week is the memory verse for the week. The very last verse that we have on the screen today is going to be Psalm 34, verses 1 through 2. We are going to be using that um, as our memory verse this week. I encourage you to memorize that. And then in the middle of the service next week, that will be our scripture reading. And the cool thing about this one is each week we're going to build on Psalm 34, memorizing two verses each week. So I encourage you to do your best to memorize that along with us. Uh, let me go ahead and open us now as we turn our attention to the Word. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Father God, I just ask that today as we come to your scriptures, the Word that you have given to us, I ask, Father God, that you would allow us to understand. And in particular, Lord, I pray that we would see the contrast between Saul and between Jesus. I ask, Father God, that we would see Saul for what he is in the text presented. But much more so, I pray that in this passage, we would see your son, Jesus, clearly. Lord, I acknowledge that we cannot do this on our own. There is no skill that I could produce that would cause this to be done in others. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit today to do this work in us, to enlighten our eyes and to enliven our hearts. So, God, we ask for your help. We ask, Father God, that you would give me strength as I preach and that you would give the congregation strength as they listen, to give them ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in 2019, during the summer... One, one of those days, I was uh, wrestling with my kids, and I was on the floor on all fours, and I was just kind of tackling them, pretending to be a bear. And then uh, one of my sons decided to uh, really get into the action by jumping off of the stairs and onto my back, and in doing so, something dramatically twisted, and for the next two or three weeks, I really struggled to even stand up. Something went way out of whack. Well, yesterday, I was standing at my bookshelf in my office looking for a book, not doing anything really, and it was like lightning hit that same spot and then just re-aggravated whatever happened four and a half years ago. So right now, God is using the um, common grace of painkillers to help me stand here before you this morning, um, but if I stop making sense about halfway through, it's because of the medication. Um, no, by God's grace, we're going to make it through this morning, but I encourage you, if you think of me, just pray for me that I'll be able to stand up here and make it through. We begin making our way again through the book of 1 Samuel. We started this book all the way back in September 10th, 
And now we've arrived at the 13th sermon in this series. As I've said in nearly every introduction in this series so far, 1 Samuel is a book all about God setting up a good king. Now today, we have arrived at one of the most important turning points in all of biblical history. I don't know if you've ever looked at a biblical timeline, a visual timeline of the Bible, but if you have, usually there are sections that cover hundreds of years that are separated from one another. And one of those section markers is going to take place in our text today. Those visual timelines are usually marked up into sections starting from Adam and then going to Abraham, and then from Abraham, the time of the patriarchs, and then from the time of the patriarchs to the time of uh, 400 years in Egypt through the time of Moses, and then we get to Joshua and the time of entering into the land plus the judges. That's another 400 rough years. And then after that, after the time of Judges, comes the time of the kings. Today is the day when biblical history shifts into a monarchy. This is a big deal, what we are seeing this morning. And before we even read the text, I want to share with you two preliminary observations. And I want to do this in this order so that as we go through the text today, you can be seeing these things and watching them along with me as they unfold. First, you need to see that Israel gets exactly what they asked for. If you remember what we considered last time we were here in 1 Samuel, when we left off, Israel demanded that Samuel find them a king, a king that would rule over them. And specifically, they asked for a king like the nations. Well, God told Samuel, obey the people's voice in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, until this point, Israel was operating as a theocracy. God was their king. He ruled them in every way that they needed. He protected them from the outside with his divine power. He protected them from the inside with his righteous law. He ruled as the only perfectly just judge and the only all-wise ruler and the only master who knows all things. And he served them as a king who was more concerned with the people's good than the people themselves were. Even so, they demanded to have God replaced. They didn't want that king. They wanted a king, quote, like the nations. Well, today, we are going to see God honor that request, and he is going to give them a king like the nations, a man named Saul. Now, the reason this is so interesting is because back in chapter 8, they asked for a king, and then they asked for a king again, and then they demanded a king. Well, the name Saul in Hebrew is the word asked for or requested. They get exactly what they asked for. God is going to give them Saul. The second preliminary observation that you need to know is that Saul is rotten from the very beginning. Now, there are two very different ways that you can perceive Saul. He has been presented throughout the last 3,000 years in two very distinct ways. The first is that he started off as a good king. He did all the right things. Everything about him was upright and strong and good. And then at some point, he went off the rails. And from that point on, he just got worse and worse and worse. And most of the arguments for this come in chapter 10, which we're, Lord willing, going to cover next week. I don't believe those are very good arguments. I believe that Saul starts off as a bad king, and he remains a bad king until his horrific death in suicide. And I'm going to do my best to show you in the text all of the clues that reveal that, both today and from now forward, some of them obvious, some of them obscured. 
but to show you that Saul was always a king like the nations. He was never a man after God's own heart. Now, with those things nailed down, let's turn our eyes to the text. But instead of reading it straight through, because this is an extensive passage, what we're going to do today is just go line by line, piece by piece, and we're going to consider it as a running commentary. And then I'm going to close our time with some application points. Let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. Let's pause there. This verse is signaling to us that we have entered into the new focus of this book. Just compare what I just read to you a moment ago with 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There it says, There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim, the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephrathite. Now, if you compare these two passages, they are identical in their construct. The first genealogy kicks off the life of Samuel. This new genealogy is placed here to ensure that we understand Samuel is going to move now into the background and he is going to be the secondary aspect of the story for a while while Saul is going to be followed by the camera moving forward. It's also really important to understand that the events of 1 Samuel are not coming to us out of thin air. They fit into a context of a larger unfolding story of the Old Testament. Chronologically, 1 Samuel happens directly after the book of Judges. In fact, in the early parts of this book, it says, in the days of the Judges. The closing chapters of the book of Judges are all about the egregious sins of the tribe of Benjamin. They are the closest actions in the entire Bible to those of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are incredibly wicked people. In fact, the Benjaminites were so evil, they became a stench to all of the other tribes, and the other tribes banded together in a civil war to wipe them out. And only by the grace of God were 600 of those men left as survivors. There's a lot of details that go into what happened there, but literally tens of thousands, nearly 100,000 Men of the Benjaminites, one of the largest tribes at that point, were wiped off the map because they were incredibly evil. It's important for us to understand that the book of 1 Samuel comes directly after those chapters. It's likely that one of the men listed in this genealogy of Saul, one of these men probably lived through those times. It is out of that, the most wicked tribe in the most wicked period of the judges, it is out of that that Saul's line is selected. Verse 2, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. What would you expect a king like the nations to be? Wouldn't he be wealthy? Wouldn't he be the tallest and most handsome man in the land? Well, the ESV says that from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Well, that's just a way of saying that he was a head taller than anyone else. He was probably about one foot taller than anyone. Now, people in general in these days were probably shorter than they are now. Uh, Mostly that's due to a high-protein diet that we consume in this part of the world. Most likely, he was at least six foot tall in a world uh, where most men were five feet tall. But if you are a head taller than everyone else, You are the man. You are the one everyone looks to. When you enter into a room, everybody knows it. 
Well, this is just a way of saying that he, of course, was taller than everyone, but he wasn't just an inch or two taller. He towered over the people. He had a regal appearance. But as we're going to see over and over and over in this book, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do you remember all the way back in chapter 2 when we heard the prayer of Hannah? That prayer was a prophetic look forward. And if you remember, it's a look forward to a good king. Her prayer ends like this. She says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Her entire song is about the way that God is going to exalt the lowly, and he's going to establish his king, and in doing so, he is going to bring low the people who are proud. Now, there's a really interesting parallel between her song and the description that we find here of Saul. Hannah said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, "'Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth.'" Well, that's how it comes across in English anyway. In Hebrew, it doesn't say proudly. It uses the word geboa, which is the word tall, and it repeats it for emphasis. Don't talk so much very tall, tall. Or in other words, stop talking like you are tall, tall. Stop talking like you are taller than everyone else. We don't hear that Hebrew word again in 1 Samuel until we get to Saul and the description of what he is like. He is geboa. He is tall, taller than everyone else. And then we don't see that word again until 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I'm not going to spoil everything that goes on there, but I will tell you that chapter 16 is when Samuel goes looking for the second king of Israel. And when he goes, he looks at the sons of Jesse, and they are paraded before him. And the Lord told Samuel that day, do not look on his appearance or his height, his geboa, his tall, tall of this stature, because I have rejected him. Speaking of one of David's older brothers, by the way. Saul is a king like the nations. He is exactly the kind of person that Hannah said in her prophetic prayer is going to be brought low. He is exactly the kind of warrior that a kingdom would be looking for. He had the outward qualifications that they wanted, but he had all of the wrong qualifications. Verse 3, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, and they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Now, I don't know if you've ever read children's books. In particular, I mean little children's books, the board books, the ones that if they chew on them, it doesn't ruin them. I have had over the last 12 years a lot of experience reading those kinds of board books, and this is exactly what they sound like. It's this story, fairy tale style of delivery where it repeats it. He goes there, and oh, they're not there, and he goes there. Oh, not there either. And then they go there. Oh, still not there. That's the way it's delivering this. Spoiler alert, Saul never finds the donkeys. But right up front, I want you to see two things that are revealed by this search. First, it shows that Saul is not a very good overseer. Later, when we get to David, we're going to contrast him in basically every way imaginable with Saul. They are so incredibly different. Already, we are seeing that Saul loses donkeys. Perhaps he wasn't responsible for that. We really don't know. But then he can't find them. 
Not only that, he goes way out of the way from where they're probably at. And when we get to David, he, we see that he appears to be somebody who not only cares for his sheep, he's good at protecting them. He's a good shepherd. He's one that actually is excellent at caring for them. And that flows over into the way that these two men lead their kingdoms. Saul fails from the very first mission we see him given. He never gets it right. Secondly, it's interesting that from this point forward, donkeys are going to be strongly associated with the kings of Israel. David rides on a donkey. Solomon rides on a donkey. Eventually, Jesus is going to ride in on a donkey rather than a war horse. And it's going to be done that way as a show of humility. Well, Saul does not ride in on a donkey. He can't even find them. Now, maybe you think that I'm being harsh on Saul. Maybe I am. But it's important to understand that a donkey was an incredibly expensive beast because of how much labor they produced for a homestead. They were used in almost every aspect of domestic life. They were like a wheelbarrow and a pickup truck and a lawnmower all in one. You could not do much on a farm without them. And his father was a man of great property and great wealth. Where did that come from? Well, in part, it came from the labor of these donkeys that are now gone. They were used in almost every aspect of domestic life. So the loss of these animals was like having their farm equipment eaten by a tornado. So getting these donkeys back was a big deal. Now listen to how he responds after not finding them after a couple of days. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. That is what you call an excuse. (laughs) Verse 6, But he, the servant, said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Now, this is also called an excuse. Listen, if I invite you to my house for lunch, which I would love to do, if I say to you one day, hey, after church, why don't you just come over to my house? Look, if you want to go buy something and bring it, great, praise God. If you don't, that's fine. We have a fridge full of stuff. Praise God. Just come over. We would love to have you. It's cool if you want to bring in something as well. But if you don't, we just really don't care. We want you to be there. In those days, it was customary to bring a gift for those that were going to show you hospitality. Sure. But if you showed up desperate and needed to speak to the prophet, he would still be happy to see you. In fact, some of the prophets later in the scriptures are going to out and out reject gifts of hospitality in exchange for God's word. Think of Elisha when Naaman comes to him and Naaman wants to be healed and Naaman wants to hear what the Lord has to say and he tries to give Elisha all of these things and Elisha refuses to accept it. Well, here, Saul wanted to go home. He wanted to find a way to just get back to his own bed So he uses this excuse. What do we have to give him? What could we possibly give this guy? So he was going to give up on the mandate given to him by his father. That's very interesting because we're going to see him do that over and over and over as king, as he constantly gives up on his commands from God. He wanted to abandon his responsibilities just to go home. Verse 8. 
The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Now, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, do you remember the warnings that were made to the people of Israel? God told Samuel, Inform all of the people all of these ways that the king is going to mistreat you. One of the big central themes of that list of things is that he is going to take their money and their crops and even their children. He is going to take and he's going to take and he is going to take and he is not really going to give them anything in return. Now before Saul is even selected to be king, we see that he's really happy to accept money from his own servant that should have come out of his own pocket. Verse 11, as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who were invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. Now this is a good place for you and I to put a mental reminder in. This is, a, this is a flag that we need to keep in our scriptures. You might even want to mark this in some way in your Bibles because the very first interaction that Saul has with Samuel is all surrounding the events of a sacrifice. And the very last interaction during Samuel's lifetime that will occur with Saul is all surrounding the events of a sacrifice. And Saul is told before Samuel arrives on both occasions that it is his responsibility to wait. Don't do anything until he gets there. In this case, we see that he is told, wait until he performs this sacrifice. Nobody's going to eat without him. Later on, we are going to see that he is told to wait to do anything until Samuel comes and presents a sacrifice, and he refuses to do so, and in refusing to do so, that is when Samuel is going to tell him the kingdom is taken from him. He seems to have no interest at any point in the scriptures in terms of sacrifice. He has no interest in the commanded forms of worship of God under the old covenant law. Verse 14, so they went up to the city... As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. And now the day before Samuel came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, at about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, to me, the language that is used here in verse 15 is really unusual and interesting. When it says that the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, the Hebrew literally reads that the Lord had uncovered Samuel's ear and spoken into it. It's as if to say the Lord pulled back the hood of his cloak and whispered to him about what was to happen. He knew that Saul was coming. Samuel knew that. And Samuel knew that Saul was going to be the king that God had warned them about. Remember, Samuel is not anticipating this king with excitement or joy. He is anticipating this king to fulfill all of the negative promises that God said were coming. So when Samuel is looking at Saul, he is seeing a man that he believes 
to be a problematic leader for Israel. And Samuel knew that he's going to be exactly like the warnings God presented. What's really interesting is that the Lord actually says that he is going to use Saul to protect Israel from the Philistines. Or more literally, it says that Saul is going to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. Now, there are two different ways that we could read this. There are two different ways people understand this. The first is that the leader always gets some of the credit. For example, Abraham Lincoln won the Civil War. Can we all agree on that? Abraham Lincoln won the Civil War. But Abraham Lincoln did not go out to battle. He wasn't carrying a rifle. He wasn't leading the troops. He wasn't riding a horse. He was in D.C. sitting in his office making plans. But we can say that he did win the Civil War. And the victories that happened on the battlefield, well, he still gets some of the credit. Similarly, Saul is later going to have many defeats over the Philistines, and most of the time, those defeats are not because of his wisdom, but because of the working of other people within his ranks. For example, when Saul is cowering in his tent, David is the one who goes out and fights Goliath. Yet, even so, we are going to see in the text that Saul is going to get some of the credit. So perhaps that's what it's saying here when it says that Saul is going to be the leader who is going to deliver them from the Philistines. However, I think there may be a better explanation. When it says that Saul is going to deliver the people from the Philistines, it does not indicate that he is going to eradicate the Philistines. In fact, he does not. Saul does have numerous military victories before David is ever on the scene. However, he is never able to put a final stop to the menacing evils of the Philistine armies. In fact, when we get to the very end of this book, the closing pages, the closing chapter we are going to see that it's during a battle with the Philistines that Saul is going to turn his own sword on himself and take his own life. Saul was not a good leader. But as the Puritan Thomas Watson once put it, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. So even though Saul was a failure, and perhaps the biggest disappointment of the entire Old Testament, God is going to use Saul to guard and to protect his covenant people, Israel. Verse 17, When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is a man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, I have to admit, when I read this in the past, when I read this verse, I thought this was a good thing. I thought God was saying something very positive here. In fact, even as I began preparing for this sermon, I was thinking, well, consider it. After the period of the judges, when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, That's exactly what Israel needs, to be restrained. But as I studied the language, I realized that's not what this is talking about at all. The best explanation I found was in a commentary which said this, quote, the phraseology in the original Hebrew is peculiar, especially the word rendered reign or restrained. It's simply implying coercion and restraint, meaning he shall rule my people sternly and rigidly with absolute uncontrolled power. So in other words, like the eastern monarchs ruled. So what is he saying here? He's saying this guy is going to be a king like the nations. He's going to judge and rule and operate like those kings operate. And now we arrive at the introduction. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. For the first time, the last of the judges is going to come into contact with the first of the kings. Verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, 
and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. Now already we are seeing a contrast in these two men. Let me show you how. First consider Samuel. This man served as the leader of Israel for decades. Some people estimate that he was already leading Israel for about 70 years at this time. He was an old man. And at this point, Samuel is being replaced by a king. Remember, God said to Samuel, basically, you shouldn't be hurt by this. Don't, don't take this personally. They're not rejecting you. They've rejected me as their king. But in reality, they are actually replacing him. And in doing so, there's a lot of room there for hurt feelings. This is the guy who has led them for so long, and now that guy, that's the guy? You're going to put this guy in charge? And so consider the fact that Samuel was incredibly humble and ready to give over authority to Saul. Matthew Henry describes Samuel's character like this. He said, Samuel, that good prophet, was so far from envying Saul or bearing him any ill will that he was the first and the foremost to do him honor. Saul, on the other hand, approached Samuel in a condescending way, a rude manner. Let me just pause here and say that there is a big difference in cultural greetings depending on where and when you live. One of my friends, Peter LaRuffa, grew up in Queens, and uh, he was the youth minister at North Shore Baptist Church a few years before I was there. And he one time told me a story about the first time he ever went to the South. He, he was taking a group of youth students to a conference, and he drove them in this van down there. And it, that's before GPS, so at some point along the way, he got really lost. I don't know if he was in North Carolina or Virginia or somewhere, but he was on a back road. And eventually, he saw this guy, this farmer, who was next to his truck or his tractor and had gotten off and was on the side of the road doing something. And so Peter LaRufa talk, took the opportunity to hop out of his car and jump out and start talking to the guy and said, Hey, I'm looking for I-95. I've been looking forever. Can't find it. And the guy says, uh, let's start over. My name's Bill. In this time, in this place, greetings mattered. Respecting your elders mattered. Saul did not offer any greeting. He offered no pleasantries whatsoever. Samuel probably didn't look like royalty. He didn't look wealthy. He didn't look important. So Saul doesn't treat him like he's important. Saul doesn't see any reason to give him respect. He basically just said, hey, old man, where's the prophet? That's the attitude that comes across in the text. Samuel continues speaking in verse 20 and says, As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Now, admittedly, these sentences sound weird in the ears of English speakers. But what Samuel is saying is very straightforward. He's just saying, stop looking for your donkeys, but people are looking for you. It's likely that someone from Saul's family had been at that meeting. Remember, it says that all Israel came together and demanded a king from Samuel. Well, somebody from Saul's family had probably been a representative there demanding a king. But even if not, he knew that the demand had been made. All Israel knew that a king was going to be established, and he knew that Samuel had agreed to select that king. Everyone in Israel desired a king, and now Samuel is saying, aren't you exactly what they desired? 
And he's looking at them, looking at Saul and saying, you're exactly the kind of person, outwardly speaking, that they are searching for. Verse 21, Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? Now, of course, he's telling the truth here in terms of the size of his clan. Remember I told you at the outset of the sermon that they had been broken down to only 600 people just a couple of generations before. They essentially became, from this point forward, absorbed into the people of Judah. So I'm not really going to address too much what's going on here today because we're going to hit this really hard next week. But for now, I just want you to see that Saul is not going to accept his calling as king easily. He's going to run from it. He is going to squirm, and he's going to push back in some incredibly cowardly ways. Earlier, Rocky was talking to you about being a man. What does it look like to be a man? Well, there's a lot of people out there in the world right now telling you what it looks like to be a man. What I'm going to tell you over the next several months is don't be like Saul. This is a terrible example of what a man is supposed to be like. This is a man who rejects his responsibilities. David is going to give us a much better picture, at least in 1 Samuel, of what a godly man looks like. He is going to operate, Saul is going to operate with incredible cowardice. And so basically what he's doing here, perhaps is genuine humility. Some people think that it is. I actually lean in the other way with the commentators who say, this is not him saying, why me, as if he's so privileged, but rather, why me, as if, why do I have to be the guy that you're selecting? Again, if you think that I'm being too hard on Samuel, just wait till next week. I think I can prove that to you. But we'll, we'll save that for next week. Verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it uh, set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now here, there's a lot of double talk going on. There are some innuendo that's taking place here. When he says, I am giving you that which has been saved for you, he is talking about the kingdom itself. Interestingly, later on, especially in places like Ezekiel chapter 34, this imagery of the kings of Israel devouring the people is going to be used. And it's going to be used in supper language like this, that he is going to go sit at the head of the table, the king's spot, and he is going to sit there and he is going to be the one that consumes the choicest of the food, the king's food. And he is going to do so because this has been preserved and reserved specifically for you. Once again, Samuel goes out of his way to honor Saul, but this time in the sight of all of his guests. This is not a private conversation. There are 30 people that had been joined together to enjoy this meal, and there, that's a lot of mouths to feed. And of all of the meat that was taken from the sacrifice, the lion's share is given to this unknown Benjaminite, the son of Kish. Even though Saul didn't choose this, I believe that once again, this is a callback to the warnings that Samuel gave the nation that the future king is going to take the best for himself. Verse 25, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel said to Saul up on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. 
So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, Tell your servant, pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Now we're just going to dip our toes for a second into chapter 10. Follow along down into chapter 10 with me. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, on Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Now, it's at this point that Saul is told that he is God's choice to be the first king of Israel. Now, Samuel had hinted at this before. He had done so in two distinct ways. But now, this is as direct as you can possibly get. Look, I don't know if anybody has ever poured anything on your head. Pouring oil on your head is noticeable. People that are around you will recognize something just happened. That is going to get everywhere and on everything. And so Samuel takes oil and pours it on his head and anoints him as the coming king. Now this is where we're going to stop in the text this morning. We're going to pick up the tail end of what we've just read and look at it again next week. But here I want to continue to consider what we've just read today by closing out with three application points. Number one, trust God's providence. One of the unmistakable truths that you discover as you read a chapter like this one is that God perfectly ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Just think of all the things that seemingly happen at random in this passage. God allowed the donkeys to run away. God allowed Saul to go the wrong direction and never find them. They end up just so happens to be right outside of the city walls of the place where Samuel lived. And Saul just happened to be there when Samuel was also there, not traveling around on his annual ministry circuit. And he just so happened to bump into Samuel when he was asking for directions to find Samuel. God was orchestrating every single step of this. Not just the verbal communication that he spoke into Samuel's ear, but every detail that was going on in Saul who had no idea what was about to take place. And do you realize that God is doing the exact same thing in your life? Not just every once in a while, but every day, every moment. You probably haven't lost any donkeys, but have you lost your keys recently? I have. And guess what? Those five minutes that you were searching for them, those five minutes that you presumed to be lost, God orchestrated that. That five-minute delay resulted in trillions of other events that rippled out from that moment that you can never understand or calculate or even notice. Yesterday, I threw out my back, doing literally nothing, <laughs> looking, looking at a bookshelf, and I have no idea why. But God does. God knows exactly what He's doing. Uh, I, I won't probably ever know the piece of the puzzle. I won't know the things that God is changing in the course of fu- the future because of this. Uh, but not only does God plan out all sovereign, uh, sovereignly all things that come to pass, He also does so for our good. If we just believe that God controls and orchestrates all things, that ultimately isn't super helpful to us. It's interesting, but ultimately not helpful unless we understand that He is working them together for His glory and for our good. He works all things, like fender benders and illness and even death, for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. You can trust God, trust His providence. Application number two Examine people through biblical categories. 
what is a red balloon? Like the one you get in the bag, you know, the uninflated, you just take the rubber. What is that? Well, it's a balloon. What happens if you take that and you blow it up with air and you inflate it? Well, it's still just a balloon. It's a red balloon. It doesn't change and become something different. What if you take a beach ball and you throw it into the ocean? Well, it's still a beach ball. It might be floating out to sea, but it's still a beach ball. What is going to happen with Saul is that we are going to see him be inflated with power. We are going to see him placed onto a throne. But he's still going to be the same old Saul. Now, there's a saying that says, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I'm here to tell you that is not true. Saul was already corrupt before he got power. The power just inflated and made more visible what was already in his heart. It was just really easy to miss some of these things when we're just looking at his outward appearance. Yeah, he looks good. He looks tall. He looks handsome. He's wealthy. As Samuel said, aren't you what everyone's looking for? Young people, I want to say something to you in particular who are looking for spouses. There is nothing wrong with looking for a spouse that is attractive. But if that is your main concern, if you're mainly looking at appearance, you are overlooking the most important factors. Look for someone who loves the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Church, if I die randomly, like I don't plan to, if I just happen to die randomly in the near future, do not fall into the trap that most churches do, who look for attractive, well-spoken, modern, relevant pastors. Look for someone who loves Jesus and who loves His Word. The best, most faithful, most effective, most godly pastors that I have ever known are the kind of men that would never be hired by a mega church because they don't fit that mold. Now, I don't plan on going anywhere, but if the Lord does do something, does take me home, don't look for worldly categories or you're probably going to get a worldly pastor. In every area of your life, You need to operate out of a framework of wisdom by doing your best to discern godly character rather than just looking at appearance. Application number three, look for a better king. Saul was a bad herdsman. He was a bad shepherd. He couldn't even find his donkeys. Well, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the one that leaves the 99 to find the one. He's the one who lays down his life for the sheep. When the job got difficult, consider what Saul did. He tried to throw in the towel and say, let's just go home. He made excuses. He tried to quit. Well, Jesus was not just looking for donkeys. He came to save rebels. He came to save enemies like you and me from destruction. He came to save people that are more rebellious and more difficult to locate than donkeys. People that wanted as much as possible to run away from him. And he didn't quit. He didn't give up. In the garden... We see Jesus praying in agony. We see that he had, as it says, as it were, great drops of blood forming on him in forms of sweat. Yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, not giving up. Earlier I said that the saying power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is wrong. Frankly, it's a lie. Well, it was wrong to see that in Saul because Saul was already corrupted before he got the power. Power just inflated what was already in him. But likewise, Jesus is not corrupted by power. Jesus has more power than everyone in this universe combined. Yet he remains uncorrupted and incorruptible. 
Jesus is the better king. He's the king that we are supposed to look for. He is the ruler that Israel rejected. And over the next few chapters, what we are going to see is the people of Israel suffer under the hands of a bad king, the lesser replacement, the man Saul, the one named asked for. Remember, you asked for this. The king like the nations. We don't want a king like the nations. We need a better king. We need a savior king. We need a merciful king. We need a gracious king. We need to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father God, I just ask that as we continue to consider this incredible book, this history book, this book filled with information about kings and monarchies and good kings and bad kings, Lord, I just pray that as we consider these things, we would consider Jesus Christ, your son, the best king, our king. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge him as king, to ensure that he is first place in our heart, to ensure that we are not like the Israelites seeking to replace him with lesser things. Help us, Lord. Particularly, Lord, I pray for us in this nation as we are now embarking upon the beginning of what seems to be a long and tumultuous election year, that we would not look to Washington, D.C. or to Albany as our king, but that we would look to a better king. Help us, Lord, to vote in accordance with biblical principles, but Lord, I pray that we would not put our hope in earthly things or earthly people. Help us, Lord, to put our faith and our trust and our hope in the true and better King, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.